like I said, I am excited to be continuing in this series called The Family Tree. And in this series, we are looking at our own family trees, our family units, the people we are closest to, and, and not just our immediate family tree, but the ways that our family trees have been influenced by two other really important trees. The first is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we see in Genesis. That is the tree that Adam and Eve ate the fruit from that brought sin into our world and started a really crazy timeline that we are still dealing with today. And the other tree is the tree upon which Jesus Christ hung. That's the cross. And you may be thinking, Jesus was on a cross, not a tree. Why do we say a tree? Well, there are several places in the New Testament where they call the cross a tree. It's the Greek word that's used there. It's kind of interchangeable. And so we are looking at those two different trees and the ways that those trees have influenced our families today. And I don't know the dynamics of your family, but there's a really good chance that, that you recognize both of them in some way. And I don't know which one you see more of in your family. Maybe you've got a ton of the tree of Jesus that is all over the lives of your family members. I would also wager there are some in this room that would say there's a whole bunch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that dictates how our family does things. And so we want to look at families and not just look at our roles as moms, dads, husbands, wives, children, siblings, but, but let's look at the way that we relate to each other in our families. And this week, I was talking about it with, with Jeff last week, the, the subject of today I think may be the most important in the entire series. What we're talking about today can be an absolutely destructive force in families, and not just our own family relationships, but every relationships in our, in our lives. What we're talking about today is criticism, or criticalness. And when criticalness is present in our families, it's not a good thing. Criticism can destroy relationships. John Gottman, founder of the Gottman Institute, famed marriage researcher, therapist, he identifies criticism as one of what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriages. Right? When criticism is present along with these three other things, the marriage is 90% doomed, unless something changes. Because criticism leads to a lot of other things. Criticism is the usher of the other three horsemen. Criticism erodes our relationship. Right? And it doesn't just happen between husbands and wives. Criticism is not just something that is dangerous to spouses. We, we don't need a show of hands, but I bet if I asked in this room, how many, how many of you have a strained relationship with a parent or a sibling, and so much of it is fueled by criticism? How many mother-daughter relationships are hard because of criticism? How many father-son relationships are difficult because of criticism? Right? It, it, is, it is jet fuel for division between people. And as we talk about it, I, I want to say a couple of things up front. First is, is that this has been a really hard message to prepare. Right? For me personally, um, I, I'm naturally a critical person. It's just something that I really easily default to. If, if you're into the Enneagram, I'm a one, and so I live in a world of criticism. If you're not, don't worry about that. Um, 
it is so easy for me to fall into criticism. So this is, this is not a, an easy message to wade through because I've had to examine a whole bunch of my own heart and what God has been teaching me over years of wrestling through this part of me that is critical. Not just that, we live in a world that is full of criticism. Right? Our culture is saturated with it. It is at the tip of every tongue or, or thumb that is writing on a smartphone. Right? It is so easy for us to criticize. And so talking about criticism and, and how we ourselves are critical is kind of like talking to fish about water. Right? It's this thing that is all around us that we are surrounded in, that we breathe in and out, and we don't even understand that it's called water. And so for, for those reasons, this is hard. This is also a really hard message because I wanted to stay away from talking about dealing with critical people in our lives. That's an important thing. There's a message or two that we could spend all on that, dealing with critical people. But I think if we did that, we would miss maybe the most important thing we need to hear from a message about criticism within families, and that is how are we critical ourselves. Right? Every week at my life group when we begin to discuss the Bible and, and, and we try to ask not just what does it say, but what does that apply to, how does that apply to our lives? What could be different about our lives as a result of this? Uh, I say every single time we start, you know, we're going to talk in me and I statements. Right? We're going to use the first person here because when we study this and talk about what could be different, it's really easy to look at them or they whoever they are, and what those people should do, it's really hard to look into the mirror and ask what needs to change about me. But I have a lot more control of what I do than what I do about what they do. And so instead of looking at all the ways that people in our lives are critical and they're screwing things up, because we would be really good at listening to that, I want us to look at the ways that we are critical the ways that we might be impacting relationships with people that we love the most. And, and I hope you hear me saying we, not you. Because again, this is really personal for me. Right? There are no pointing fingers of condemnation here. I, I am just as much a part of this. This is a journey that I want us to go on together. Because if we can unpack what criticism does to our families and maybe what a different way forward with the tree of Jesus influencing our families, I think we might experience more abundant, more full, more thriving life. The criticism does not come from the tree of Jesus. Criticism is a fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And like so many fruits from that tree, it can be boiled down to a, a common root with so much of sin. Right, the story of sin, we had a perfect relationship with God. We chose rebellion. We severed that perfect relationship. We created distance, separation between us and God. And from that moment, we have spent our lives trying to work our way back into right relationship with God. And we have tried all sorts of different systems and ideas and methods and behaviors to do that. But essentially, so much of our lives is spent trying to work our way back into right relationship with God. Trying to justify ourselves and our behaviors and our actions so that we can be in right standing with God. Criticism is just another manifestation of that. 
right? Because what sin does is it takes the good desire to be reunited with God and it perverts it into all sorts of twisted ways. And one of those is criticalness. Criticalness is one of the tools that we use to try and justify ourselves. And none of us would say that because we know criticism is not a good way to go about justifying ourselves with the Lord. But if we're honest, we are critical for a lot of different reasons. And so many of them come back to this this desire to justify ourselves, to make our actions, our attitudes, our lives be right. And so we're going to look at four different dynamics, four reasons that we ourselves are critical, and then we're going to examine how those affect our families. And again, we're not looking at everybody else in our world. We're going to try and look at ourselves. One of the first reasons that we are critical is in order to be right. Right? And part of justifying ourselves, justifying our own lives, one of the most powerful tools we have is being right. We have an insatiable desire to be right. Because if I am right, that puts me higher up on the ladder than other people, which puts me closer to God, which makes me more like Him, which makes me more justified. And so if I can perform in a way that is more right than everybody else, that gets me closer to the prize and puts me where I'm supposed to be. And so... The way that I find myself more right than everybody else is by showing how everybody else is wrong. And this gets really dangerous when it becomes about our faith, right? Because if my personal expression of living out faith is the most right way to do that, everybody else's way is wrong, that makes me more holy than everybody else, more saved, and I actually am closer to God because... I've let everybody know all the ways that they're not close to God. Me being right, me having the monopoly on being right, is an essential part of my existence in trying to justify myself, my life, my behaviors. And that's not something that's just spiritual in nature, right? That, that bleeds over into everything else. Suddenly the way that your spouse loads the dishwasher is wrong because your way of doing that is right. Your driving is so much better than your spouse's. The way that you want to spend money is better than somebody else in your family's way that they want to spend money. The way that you budget your time is so much better than somebody else's. You are right on all of that, and all of those things make you better in them less. I see smiles because it's true. (laughs) Second thing that we do to justify ourselves, the way that we use criticism to, to help justify ourselves is to manage our appearance. Right? If the way that we seek justification is, is in part by meeting the approval of others, if there are people that we think if I meet their approval, that gets me where I want to go, then we will do anything necessary to meet their approval, to be the person that they want us to be, whoever they are. And we will use whatever weapons we have available to make sure that our family is a part of that approval process. And so, and so we'll criticize people within our family so that they fit the mold that we think they need to so that we can get the approval from the people we want so that we can be declared right, so that we can be justified. And so we look at our families and we think, our families do or don't do this. Our families look a certain way. We don't do that as a part of our family. 
We're very, very concerned with the appearance that our family might have to others because it has to meet a certain standard because if we can meet that standard, then it will be enough. Another thing we do, we, we criticize in order to distract from our own faults. This is a painful one to admit. But the reality is some of the things that we are most critical of are, in fact, things we are most flawed with ourselves. And it is a really powerful weapon if I can go ahead and point out all the ways that you're wrong so that you can't ever get to the things that are wrong with me. If I can keep everybody in my world off balance, they never get a chance to get really close and poke at my heart. Or I can prevent any attack that somebody might have against me if I've established together with them all the ways that they themselves are imperfect. Right? If, if we know all the ways that you're wrong, don't talk to me about a speck in my eye when you've got a log in yours. We also criticize in order to control others or to tear them down. And again, these are not things that we would ever come right out and say. But in this desire to be right, this desire to climb up, this desire to be more justified or correct than anybody else, we will tear other people down because that elevates us. Right? It's not just about climbing a ladder, it's cutting the floor out from underneath somebody else. And, and it actually kind of feels good sometimes to be powerful, to have other people wanting to meet your expectations. Right? We can criticize so that others want now the approval of us. And if people want my approval, then that means that I am superior, which makes me more right, which makes me better or more justified. Everybody feel good about yourself? Right? This is fun. Um, no, it's hard to talk about, but we have to. Because it's real. We are, we are critical people. And we're critical of the people that we love the most. And, and not even are we just critical, but, but we have lots of great ways to frame uh, our criticisms so that they're not bad things. Right? We, we, we just want to tell the truth. That's a fair one. Just going to tell them the truth. Um, we, we're just giving feedback. It's tough love. It's something they need to hear. And, and please hear me. I'm not saying that, that there's never a place for rebuke, for correction, for discipline. All of those things are vital and essential. We do need to give feedback to each other. That's how we have relationship with each other. That's how we get better. But feedback is far different from criticism. And so much of the criticizing we do, we mask as feedback or saying a hard thing, just speaking the truth. Right? Here's the difference. Criticism attacks character and not behavior. Right? The guy who comes home, walks in, goes straight to the couch, turns on the TV. Not a good look. Right? Not debating that. Criticism wants to know why he's lazy and a bad father. Feedback, understanding, hard conversations want to know what's going on, that that's the first thing you do. 
right? One, one is about him as a person. The other one is about trying to understand his behavior. Both of those are hard conversations, but one's criticism and one is a hard conversation that's seeking a better future, right? Criticism is belittling. Criticism blames people. Criticism isn't focused on a better solution. And criticism is based on one right way of doing everything. And criticism destroys relationships. In a family that is full of criticism, you don't just get criticism, you get the other four horsemen that John Gottman talks about, which are contempt and defensiveness and stonewalling. All right, if I criticize, if criticism has a, a big part in, in my marriage, in my family, everybody begins to see each other with contempt. We don't like each other. We get defensive. We point fingers. We assign blame to everybody else. We do everything we can to, to get rid of criticism. And eventually, we just build walls and put wedges between us so that we're isolated, which breeds more criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and wall building. Right? It doesn't just stop there. Uh, Families full of criticism are environments that are full of fear, right? We're always worried when the next attack is going to come, the next thing that, that is going to be criticized. And so we live just, just trying to avoid that attack. Families full of criticism are also families full of guilt, where, where we are just sure that everything we do will never be enough. We can't ever do anything right. And families full of criticism can also be full of shame, which is a step beyond guilt because guilt says that, that what I've done is not enough. Shame says who I am will never be enough. And there's no way that I can ever make this right because I am just fundamentally flawed. Those aren't fun families to get to live in. And maybe the most damaging idea that can come from criticism being alive and well within our family is the idea that God is a critical God. That God is just waiting for the next screw-up so that he can punish us. That God wants us to be aware all the time of all the ways that we have screwed up and that we do not measure up to his standards. That God has no place in his family for people like us because we're just broken and defective. Anybody had that version of God taught to them at some point in their life? Yeah. That... That's a God that a lot of us were taught. And if we looked at the people that taught that version of God, I bet criticism is a huge part of their world. That's not a good family to get to grow up in. It's not a good family to live and to love in. So, what do we do with that? These aren't new problems. We're not the inventors of criticism. Ever since the garden, we've been dealing with this. The people of God, churches, families, have all been dealing with problems like this. 
problems that come from us trying to justify ourselves. The New Testament's actually full of letters to churches that were dealing with issues just like this. One of them is in the church in Rome, and it's the book of Romans in your Bible, and we're going to look at some verses from chapter 14. If you want to flip there in your Bible, you're welcome to. We're going to have them up on the screen. And we're not going to cover every single verse for the sake of time. We're not going to read everyone in service here today. So I really, really do encourage you, if not right now, uh, later read through chapters 14 and 15. And again, we don't have time to go into everything, so I can't go into all the cultural details of what's happening. But Paul is writing to a church that is divided. And the language that he uses at, at multiple times is that these are people who now have contempt for each other. These people are angry, they are in disagreement, they are not united. And it's because several people have different ideas about who's right, and everybody is sure that they themselves are right. Sounds like an environment that is ripe for criticism. And again, I can't go into all the details, but, but the short version is there are three main groups of people in the church. There's Jewish people that have converted to Christianity, and as a way to honor God, they have decided that they are going to keep all of the laws regarding a kosher lifestyle. And so they are going to observe all of the religious holidays that they used to, and they're going to eat all the, the right foods that they're supposed to. And in Rome, it's really hard to get meat that is kosher, and so they've just decided we're not going to eat meat at all. And that's a way that we're going to honor Jesus. There's another group of Christians who converted from Judaism, and they have said the earth is the Lord's and everything in it including animals, and Jesus made everything clean. And so it doesn't matter what food we eat. We can eat meat in Rome or any meat because Jesus doesn't care about that. And so as a way to honor Jesus, we're going to eat meat because we're going to celebrate the freedom that we've been given. And we're not going to observe every holiday that we used to when we were under the old law because Jesus has given us freedom of that. Every day is Jesus's, and we don't need to do special things to observe special days to make him like us anymore. And so out of, out of reverence to God, we're going to not observe holidays. And then you got Gentile Christians that didn't grow up with either of them and think it's all weird. <laughs> but there's people who think that they should do all the stuff that the Jewish people used to do, but that's confusing because there are now Jewish people who say, we don't have to do all that stuff. So everybody in the church has a different opinion about what is right. And they're all sure that their opinion is right. And so Paul writes to them. And he says these verses in chapter 14, it's the first few verses there. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Basically, Paul is laying out a completely different way of looking at this conflict than anybody in this church thought or any of us in our families usually think of. Right? Paul's basically saying, hey, so you got the one group of people that they've decided they're only going to eat vegetables, and that's how they're going to honor God. And I think they're right. And then he says, and you got that other group of people, and they've said they're going to eat anything they want to out of honor for God. 
and I think they're right. So stop fighting about something that doesn't matter. Stop quarreling over disputable matters. Right? This is not a salvation issue. This is not something that should consume the life and love of the church. Fighting over whether we should eat meat or should not eat meat. Because what we identify, what Paul is looking at, far more than the eating of meat or the not eating of meat, is what are their hearts. And what he recognizes is that both groups are trying to honor Jesus with their lives. And so let's care more about somebody's heart than their behavior, and let's stop fighting with each other for trying to honor Jesus. Does that make sense? He's saying, look, you guys are both trying to do the same thing. And so you're both right, because what God cares about more than anything is a pure heart that wants to honor Him. And so love each other. Stop fighting over trying to honor God with your lives. Stop trying to own the monopoly on being right. Maybe you're both right, and this is not something that should divide the people of God. And ultimately, it's not for you to decide who's right or not, because you're not the judge. God is. So leave that to Him. You don't get to condemn each other. You don't get to hate each other. You don't get to judge each other because you are not God. What God has done is declared that you are both accepted into His kingdom because of the work of Jesus. Throughout the rest of His argument, Paul is bringing this back to the cross. He's saying, again, there's no performance that you can give that will get you into the club, right? Nobody has the monopoly on on rightness. There is no way that you can justify yourself. There's no way that you can, can make yourself righteous by things that you do or do not do. The only thing that made you right was the atoning work of Jesus. And so love him. And don't let things that, that, are, that are lesser than that get between you. Right? If we can take everything to the cross, everything changes. The way that we see every dynamic in our lives, it can change when we bring it to the cross because it's no longer based on what I have to do to perform my way to be good, to be worthy, to be in. Right? Everything that we said about criticism, those four main causes of it, right? if I'm not trying to justify myself anymore, right? if I'm not trying to perform my way into goodness, I, I no longer have to be right about everything. Because being right won't get me anywhere with God. It's not going to get me any farther. Well, I just want to love Jesus. And so if I can rest in the fact that what he did for me makes me right in God's sight, I no longer have to be right about everything. And actually, I can care more about getting it right than being right, which is a far more effective question to ask. How do we get this right rather than how do I be right? I said it to myself over and over and over. Let's get it right, not be right. 
right? If, if, if I don't have to meet other people's expectations, if I don't have to pursue the approval of other people, I can let everybody in my life off the hook, right? If I can really trust that there is no appearance or action or measure I can take to meet the approval of Jesus, that it is all grace that has been given to me because of his work on the cross, I can let the people in my life off the hook. I don't have to make them measure up to anything because I'm not pursuing approval of anyone. If Jesus has accepted me with my faults, I don't have to be afraid of them anymore. I don't have to hide them. I don't have to point out the faults of other people. Because the same God that is gracefully dealing with my own imperfections is very aware of theirs, and he's dealing with theirs in grace. And so if I really do trust Jesus with that, I don't have to live showing everybody's faults and, and being scared that mine are going to be exposed. Because they have been exposed, and he's dealt with them, and there's grace aplenty for them. If Jesus has full control of my life, I don't have to control anybody else. If Jesus has full control of my life, if I believe Jesus is who he says he is, he is the king of the universe, and he has everything in his sovereign control, and I no longer have to control other people. There is incredible freedom from criticism at the tree of Jesus. It is a much more abundant, thriving, life-giving existence than the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? If, I'm, if we're not focused on justifying ourselves through our performances, we can actually love other people. And that's what Paul says to do over the course of chapters 14 and 15. Right? The course that he prescribes for this church in Rome, in so many words, is, is to identify the things that are absolutely vital versus the things that are matter of preference. Okay, what, what is a salvation issue? What are the things that matter most to God? What are the things that Jesus is desperately concerned with? And what are the things that are just preferential? Right, so you do it this way, you do it that way. We both have the same heart seeking to honor Jesus. Maybe we don't need to be mad at each other over that. Right, we're, we're gonna give up our own monopoly on being right so that we can, we can be right with Jesus and each other as a family whether that's the family of God in the church or the family that lives in our house or gathers around the Thanksgiving table. Right? And in all of that, we're always going to look for ways to build each other up, not just advance ourselves. Those are very different ways to approach disagreements, to approach hard conversations. Right? Identify the things that are absolutely essential versus things that are not. We're not going to fight over things that are not essential. We're going to seek to build each other up, to encourage each other in the process, and we're not going to demand that we have to be right because we care more about being right with Jesus and with each other in the process. And Paul says over and over again this, bit, this idea of building each other up, 
verse 13, he says, let us, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. The first three verses of chapter 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. These are the things that we're supposed to care about as God's family. Not our own agenda, not being right, but instead pleasing the Lord and building each other up. Why? Verses 5 and 6 go on to say, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Let's not be divided about non-essential issues so that we can glorify the Lord. Let's stop thinking of our families as, as people that we have to tolerate, people we hope we don't fight with anymore. And instead, let's think our family is a vehicle through which we can glorify the Lord. The way that we love each other, the way that we interact with each other, the way that we care about each other, the way that we have hard conversations with each other, all of that is a means to glorifying the Lord. We build each other up so that Jesus might be glorified through us. And that's really hard. <laughs> but it's made easier with the truth of the next verse that Paul writes. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Again, if we go back to the cross, it changes everything. Is at the cross we remember that God accepted us full of faults, brokenness, sin, rebellion, ridiculousness, however you want to say it. And he saw every bit of our mess and he loved us. And he accepted us. That's the love that God has. And it's the love that he desires us to have for each other as well. It's the love that he desires to be real and tangible in our families. And maybe that is a different God than you grew up hearing or that you've heard before. Right earlier when we said maybe God's a critical God. Maybe that's the version that you've known. God is just waiting for you to screw up. God just cannot get over all the things that you have done to make him mad. God would never have a place in his family for you. But the reality is anyone who has believed in Jesus is in the family. There is no extra thing to do to earn your way in. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him and you're in. And there is grace for everything. And that makes it possible within our families and our relationships 
to love each other with grace. Because when we've experienced it, we can give it away. When we've been forgiven much, we can forgive much. So let's not be people who fight about insignificant things, non-salvation things. Let's be people who care deeply about each other's hearts. Let's have that be the guiding question in our hard conversations, always seeking to build each other up. That's how the family of God operates. That's how our families are supposed to operate. That is how God works with us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us even when we are most unlovable. Lord, we apologize and we acknowledge all the ways that we get this thing wrong. God, forgive us for critical hearts that assume the worst in other people, that, that tear other people down, that try to control, manipulate in order to make ourselves feel better. When in reality, the only thing that will make us feel better is you. Jesus, thank you for your love. Would you transform us would you transform our families? Would you transform our world? God, may we see each other the way that you see us. May we see ourselves the way you see us. May we experience freedom in you. Jesus, I pray for anybody that has not said they want to trust you with their whole lives. God, may they have the courage today to say yes. Lord, may your kingdom come in our lives here like it is in heaven. We love you. Amen.